Welcome to a new episode of the Book Club for Busy Lives podcast brought to you by Quinnipiac University's School of Health Sciences, Inclusive Excellence Committee, and Quinnipiac's Center for Teaching and Learning. In this episode, we continue our exploration of issues relating to inclusive teaching in higher education through our discussion of the book, What Inclusive Instructors Do. This book is a thoughtful investigation of insights into issues instructors in higher education encounter in creating inclusive classroom environments. On today's episode, we will be joining hosts Dr. Karen Majeski, Assistant Professor of Occupational Therapy, and Dr. J.T. Torres, Director of Quinnipiac University's Center for Teaching and Learning, as they speak with Senior Teaching Instructor Michael Veith from Quinnipiac's Department of Biological Sciences. Michael holds a Master's in Biology from the University of Iowa, as well as a Master's in Education in Secondary Science Education from the University of Maine. Michael has taught at several universities prior to joining Quinnipiac's biology department. Michael is also a member of the university's Academic Integrity Board and co-directs Quinnipiac's Bobcat Academy, a peer-driven student support group designed to increase academic enrichment and social connections. We join our conversation in progress. So it's not really a surprise that one of the biggest challenges of inclusive education is how we define inclusive education. You know, what does it really mean to be diverse, to be inclusive, to incorporate social justice in our classrooms? And so in order to answer this question, the authors of the book, What Inclusive Instructors Do, created a national survey to find out how other instructors are defining this term and how it informs their practice. Um, I'm just going to read briefly from their methods they write that they did not want to take the approach of relying solely on personal experiences with inclusive teaching, but on those of hundreds of instructors across ranks, disciplines, and institution types who completed their survey in their national study. Um, They asked instructors to define what inclusive teaching meant to them in addition to the inclusive teaching approaches that they implemented in their courses. In their research, they were able to gather data from over 300 instructors from diverse institution types and disciplines Their respondents included 180 females, 174 individuals who self-identified as white and non-Hispanic, 118 tenured or tenure track faculty, 175 full-time faculty, 97 faculty who worked at a doctorate granting institution, and 162 faculty who had participated in professional development activities that focus on inclusive teaching. So just reading all these stats to uh, share how robust their study was, how it informed their book, and how they're taking a very global view on what it means to be inclusive. So what we decided to do, um, we're very interested in the local context, right? When it's really difficult to define this term and it's really difficult to imagine how it changes our practice and our interactions with students, we are actually interested in the opposite approach of diving deep, deeper into our personal experiences and those emotional experiences and how they impact the way we think about ourselves as instructors and our students in our classes. So in our attempt to replicate this study, we created a similar survey with similar questions to just find out what are instructors in our region um, doing to implement inclusive teaching and how are they defining and thinking of it. Um, so they had 300, over 300 uh, instructors that fulfilled their survey. What was our N? We had an N of 11. Okay, okay, so <laughs> a very different approach. Um, let's talk a little bit about what we did and, and so what are some of the questions that we asked? So. The first main one was, what do we think an inclusive instructor, what it means to be, um, as as well as challenges to creating an inclusive classroom. So we're asking about some of those definitions, um, and then we asked about you know how they get uh, how they get implemented. 
What were let, let's just recap really quickly, Karen? Can you talk a little bit about the findings in general from what inclusive instructors do? Yeah, sure, I'd be happy to. So, um, the the summary, um, the authors talk about how um, many terms in educational spaces are often difficult to actually define, or they they use the term seemingly elusive. Um, and then they go on to say, as, and I'll read a bit, as we start to operationalize the term through the voices of instructors by their participation in this national survey, um, although their definitions varied, there are overarching themes that unify their definitions. So um, we could talk about those two themes a bit. Um, the first is that um, to the instructors, inclusive teaching involves designing learning environments that are A, equitable, where all students have the opportunity to reach their potential, and B, welcoming. So in welcoming, you're fostering a sense of this belonging. And I think the biggest connection is that equity and belonging are interrelated. Given that, equitable learning environments then promote that sense of belonging. So they're really not two separate constructs. They're really um, something that we see together um, and that they're interrelated. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. I think about how frequently in my class I try to set up public moments of early success where I set something up that is gonna be, that feels like a challenge and then just do everything I can to create conditions for success so students right away, mm -hmm. they're getting those equitable results and then possibly they feel like they belong. What are, what are some of the things that the instructors said in response to that question? Most of the respondents focused more on how to make the classroom welcoming. Um, we all know that a safe space is important for our students, and at least for um, the courses I teach, I see most of my students for six hours a week between lecture and lab. Mm -hmm. And so I learn their names before they walk in the door. I can greet them by their first name or preferred name. I get to know them on a more individual basis, which causes me to have students want to come back the next semester. Um, I have a core, I think, of about 10 to 15 students that regularly attend office hours. It started last semester, it continues now, and four or five I'll work with until they graduate because they'll just continue to come. And so the idea of a safe space is, is primary. Um, and then also another highlight in multiple responses was acknowledging the differences that we share with each other. And so for Quinnipiac being a PWI, um, there is lack of perceived diversity in the classroom, but there's enough underlying tones where we have room to grow for instructors to understand and learn more. Mm. Yeah, um, and, and just for context, PWI being a <coughs> predominantly white institution, I think that gets exactly at the point that you're making, Karen. Um, equity con is connected to belonging and being welcome, right? Because when you are in a PWI, there's one type of identity that's automatically welcome. Mm -hmm. And so how do we do the work of making sure that that becomes more equitable? Um, as a quick follow-up question, and so because I, I work, of course I'm an educator, but I also work to support educators in this work. And one of the things that I hear the most is the difficulty of memorizing names. Can you tell, can you tell us, Mike, how many students do you have and what are some strategies that you use to know their preferred names? So I'm 
lucky in the sense that I currently teach a 4-4, so four courses fall, four courses spring. But if you're in my lecture, you're in my lab. And so three of my four courses this semester are the same students. And that's only 26 students in lecture, so one lab is 12 and one is 14. And so I use the course photo roster right away at the beginning of the semester. I also have a survey, an anonymous survey of who's in the classroom that I use that I took from the book. And that is put out before school starts um, as a something in Blackboard to have them learn Blackboard. And then I start to look through that and try and work some of that information into our first week of class, which is not material, it's more metacognitive skills in biology. And so I start working in that and that just helps create a comfortable space for the students. Did you use the exact um, survey questions? Did you adapt your own uh, to figure out who's in your class? The four of us in biology that use it added a couple for our own purposes. Mm -hmm. So I can't remember if they're in there or not, but we added veteran status because of our veteran population. We added commuters. Mm -hmm. We also added, are you taking care of a family member at home? Um, could you afford the textbooks? Do you have access to a laptop or at least a mobile device? Because during COVID with online exams, we wanted to make sure we were supporting all of our students versus needing loaner laptops. Um, do you have the ability to protect yourself in lab by purchasing goggles? Or did we need to pick up that cost? Oh, nice, very nice. Um, JT, I'll share that um, you had come to our department to do um, an example of story of name, right, in this activity of how we could get to know people in our class through the activity story of name. Um, my, my class size is 80. And I've taught courses with 250 students before. Right, wow. right. So it makes it a little <clears throat> bit different. I, I, similar, similar to you, I have um, some of those students in lab. Mm-hmm. But I am fortunate where I have some lab instructors. So now this creates a bit of a divide for me where those in my lab I know more mm -hmm. intently than the others. So now I'm kind of overthinking, right? How am I going to know everyone equitably? Um, so I ended up putting a, f a Flipgrid link on my Blackboard site and created the first activity of give me a one minute recording of your story of name. So I sort of adapted what JT had taught us, um, gave them some prompts, you know, what um, are your gender pronouns? What's your preferred name or nickname? Um, why are you named this? How did the story of your name come about? And I give my example of my name um, and the students really enjoyed it. They really said, um, you know, I felt like you were trying to get to know all mm -hmm. 80 of us. Um, and, but then I shared that link on the Blackboard um, lab sites. So then my lab instructors also have access. So they also can really uh, find this sense of belonging in their lab classrooms without the students having to do it twice. Um, so I just wanted to share that sometimes the larger class sizes can be a little bit more tricky um, to get at this, but you know, with some creative technology or just reaching out to someone like JT who helped me problem solve this, you know, I was able to really get that done with the larger class size too. Just a quick shout out to science educator Cindy Kern, who's also a Quinnipiac <laughs> professor who taught me story of a name. So um, yeah, and I also want to share full transparency. Um, I teach writing courses. I have never had a class with more than 30 students. 
So I want to be, I want to share that as well. But I also have a life hack for us. Um, there's a 2017 study that was in life sciences education that found that the perception that instructors know all their students' names is actually more important, or I shouldn't say more important, but actually carries the same outcome of knowing your students' names. So in the event that you forget a particular student's name, what happens in the study is that if you were to call on someone else's name, so like let's say this is a classroom, let's say I forget Mike's name, so I say, Karen, can you respond to this question? Or Karen, what ideas do you have? Mike in this hypothetical situation would see me call on Karen and know her name and automatically think, well, he must know my name too. So the perception of knowing the name is also important. So for faculty who do have those large classes, according to this study, um, if there's just a core group of students who you remember on the spot, use their names. And then that perception carries forward. Oh, well, that's interesting. And for larger courses, a colleague of mine at University of Illinois, um, he uses a computer program for attendance, but it gives him a, a map of the classroom. And so he knows when they log in where they're sitting and who's present. And he's been able to map who sits in the same spot every time. So he memorizes those names and every now and then a random person around them. But he also claims he does an old school method where he writes all of their names on popsicle sticks. And he comes in with two beakers and he says that I'm going to pull them out randomly and call on you. And then you go into the other beaker. And so it's a gamble every time if you're going to be called on or not. But this is the one way he learns his, the students' names. And I think he has 650 students in his lectures. Wow. 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 I was just thinking when we were teaching on Zoom, one of the things that I liked was that the name was on the tile. So when you talk about where people are positioned and seeing the name to the face, I do feel like when we were you know, remote, I was much better at the names. Um, so having that visual and the location really does really I'm, does I'm jealous that your students turned on their cameras. <laughs> well, no, so what happened, I, when you were sharing that, I, I thought, the disappointment that I always felt when I joined my own Zoom class and it was all black boxes. Mm -hmm. I was like, at least your names are very visible now. I don't know what you look like, but I can call you by your name. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I guess we just said, I want uh, cameras on for this activity and then, you know, people complied. Of course, didn't have to, but the mm -hmm. majority, the majority did, yeah. Well, what happened um, to me frequently um, is when I would walk around campus student would walk by me and say hi to me and I'd be like, I have no idea who that is because <laughs> your camera was always off while mine was on. So of course you recognize me, but I don't know who that is. And your story, uh, the study that you just shared with us about perception, I do feel that that's true because um, I would tell the students, you know, there's 80 of you, I'll watch this flip grid, but I can't guarantee that mm -hmm. I'm gonna remember all this. So if I don't know your name, I will ask you, please remind me of your name, it's gonna help me. And I'll, I remember going around the lab one day and actually calling people by name, like quit self-quizzing and they heard me, right? So I probably should have been doing it in my head. <laughs> <laughs> um, and two of the students said, wow, you actually really are trying to remember this. I'm impressed. Like it wasn't amused that I was just <laughs> pretending, right? So I think that the perception of you even trying Absolutely. goes mm -hmm. a long way. Absolutely. So I'm curious about um, in the survey that you sent out, Mike, about barriers. Did, did mm. people report um, what makes this difficult? Yeah. So there were, I'll claim, two types in the survey. The first one was more of class size, like we were just mm -hmm. talking about. Um, however, the largest class at Quinnipiac, I think, is 75 students. Um, so 
I don't know if that's a barrier on the faculty member side or just the classroom is a barrier to actually making eye contact with students. Mm. The other side of it was, um, as JT had mentioned before, with Quinnipiac being a, a primarily white institute, that there already is a majority in the classroom that is visible. And so mm -hmm. it is harder in some students' minds to share their own diversity. And then the other large one was our administration, more from grading policies, accreditation yeah. standards, more of the admin side of the courses. For example, in the introductory biology series for health science majors, which I coordinate, that's anywhere from 550 to 850 students each semester. It is primarily taught by part-time faculty and we all follow the same syllabus. No curving, no extra credit, no scaling. They have to have their exams on the days that it's scheduled. There is no wiggle room. And so if you get behind, you have to play catch up really quickly or assume they're gonna to listen to a recording because the exams don't move. And so that's an admin issue in the course because there's a lack of academic freedom because of the amount of students we serve. Mm. Yeah. Do you find I mean, what's your assessment of that model? I mean, where, where should the flexibility, because we know in what inclusive instructors do, it talks about inclusive instructors are adaptable. So is it like administration needs to also be adaptable or what? what's your assessment of that? Since I'm admin for this course we're talking about, um, I am as flexible as I can when provided an appropriate amount of information. And so if a student just says, can I take the exam and postpone it a couple days without telling me why, I cannot make an adult decision, or are you just saying you need more time to study because you partied too hard last weekend? Mm -hmm. uh, for example, I had a student who had to postpone her exam because of an issue within her family, and she was very upfront with it, and I'm able to make the decision, which will not get me in trouble with administration. Mm -hmm. But she took the exam yesterday and then sent me an email that, oh, I should have told you before I took the exam, my grandfather passed away yesterday. And I would have postponed it, but she said, no, it's an adult decision because of the stress of finals coming up. She wanted to complete it, uh. which I will respect. Mm. But when it comes to, and I came from the part-time world in this series, we're held to a standard because our students are handed off to Karen for your <laughs> majors. And when we're servicing eight, 10, 12 different majors at once, there has to be a, a line in the sand now I feel comfortable moving the line a little bit, mm. but the part-time faculty should not have to make that call. Mm. Yeah, that's very interesting. You're leading me to another question that I think you may have asked in your survey. What is the student responsibility mm -hmm. also um, in some of this? And I know that might be a charged question, mm. but um, I, it was something I was curious about. Or at least what do what do instructors think is the student responsibility? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the main theme coming through in the results, and again, N of 11, mm -hmm. was students coming in with a growth mindset. And so having taught non-majors, having taught health science majors, having taught majors, there is a difference when they walk into the classroom based off of what they think it's going to be about versus actually how the teacher makes the course. And so even though the nine faculty teaching in bio 101 102 this semester 
we all have different teaching styles. I am more, um, I have to lecture when it's necessary. I do active um, engagement, active work. We've added projects in for group work to bring in scientific communication and social skills. But some faculty are more lecture-based. Some are flipped classroom. Um, I know one who is very environmental focused. And so every topic is environment. And so the growth mindset on the students is they have to see where the connections come into play. And it's really hard for a growth mindset at the beginning of the semester when they don't know our teaching style and I don't know their personalities. And so we're hoping they're coming in with a growth mindset from high school. But we've seen in the last couple of years because of COVID that's decreased a little bit. And so we've worked into the course. The first week of the fall is not material based. It is more metacognitive skills on how do you know what you know? When do you know what you don't know? Um, and trying to wrap faculty's mind around that is harder than I thought. So I'm even seeing where do faculty have a growth mindset in relationship to educating students? Ooh, that's a good question. And we're working, the students who come to office hours early have a growth mindset. They want to know more about the topic. They want to review an exam afterwards to see how they misread a question to learn how to improve on the nexus and it's not just the material it's more of connecting with the faculty on a more personal level and that on average will improve their score in the course um the students who ask questions in class that's the hardest part because it's first semester first year for most of my students and coming from covid world they never asked questions questions and so it's pulling teeth um and eventually it starts to work um i do i use more shock than anything in my examples um mm -hmm. so there are videos i show there's only one video i show where i give a trigger warning everything else there's no trigger warning they watch it and then we start a conversation so it's just trying to shock them into to thinking about the topic of hand in a different light mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Some of the strategies you just kind of described about that growth mindset are often things that I might ask my students in an advising session, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm just kind of curious. We talked about our what, what do the instructors themselves know about creating this growth mindset in students. So I'm just wondering both of your opinions on sort of some advising practices in terms of helping students navigate this besides just the instructor in the classroom's sort of responsibility and role? That's a really good question. If I can not answer it by answering it slightly <laughs> differently, because um, my, my advising experience is, is quite low, but what's interesting about this conversation right now is kind of the pathway. We, we represent three different time points of the student journey since I largely teach first year students. Um, I also have a lot of experience mentoring K through 12 educators. And with things like No Child Left Behind, a heavy emphasis mm -hmm. on standardized assessment, mm -hmm. frequent assessments, I don't know that growth mindset is getting taught. So uh, a question that I have that I don't know how to answer is where is it being taught? Hopefully, right. you know, with advisors, with instructors, um, some of that can be worked into the design, such as how we learn from failure. So um, if, I can, if I can answer your question by not answering it, but giving you another question, how do you, and I'm, I'm asking this because of the research, you look at Carol Dweck's work on mm -hmm. growth mindset and 
that comfort with failure, how important that is, that I can fail, I can reflect on it, and I can try it again. With the emphasis on correctness that our current education system has, how do you all work with failure and how do you promote a growth mindset, assuming that it's not being taught elsewhere? Yeah. And I know, Mike, you said, assuming they come in with a growth mindset, and then I'm hearing what JT says. So, like, <laughs> we're really recognizing a gap here in this discussion. So, I see a lot of the developmental stages going on in our students because I have a 16-year-old at home oh, okay. who is, as we record, prepping for three AP exams coming up and prom and sports. And part of the way I was able to show him growth mindset was time management skills because if he has his timing down he can do everything he wants but he realizes now that if he gets behind he has to give something up and so that was a simple one with him only because we have a shared family calendar everything is is interconnected in our family the other way is when he's prepping i'm trying to avoid putting the pressure of what is your exam score and so at Quinnipiac, Blackboard is nice because the students have access to their grades as soon as I input it, but the negative is they look at the color. Mm. And I don't see the color from the faculty perspective, and so someone after the last exam emailed me, oh, my grade wasn't orange. And I didn't know if that was a good or a bad thing because I don't know the, the color scheme. <laughs> I know red is, is a negative in their eyes. And so I'm seeing more and more students coming in with they're either so stressed about scores or they come in and I think they have a more relaxed attitude after they get through that first test. And so it's the stress of the first exam, see how I did, and then I can start working with them on, well, how did you study? Mm. What about trying this? And I've been working with students, there's one, every exam, she walked in at the beginning of the semester and scheduled exam reviews during week one to make sure that we could go over her exam two days after she saw her grade. And so that's the kind of thing, and her friends have picked up on it in the class, and now they're coming as a group, and I can interact with four or five. Can't get all 28 in my office for that class, but they're coming in groups now. Mm, yeah, and I do find um, a lot of what you're describing is more what I do when I'm advising students. Um, so I am, you know, teach more at the, the um, graduate or doctoral level, but I do also advise some, you know, lower, um, you know, freshman, sophomore, and junior students, and they, they need that type of support that you're talking about. Um, so when, but I typically get them when they're struggling. So I mm. get the referral, the Thrive referral, or they contact me directly, I have a bad grade. Um, and then we talk through those growth mm -hmm. mindset types of um, steps that they could take. Um, but I, uh, you know, I, I do wonder, is it is something that needs to be a part of a curriculum or an advising model Absolutely. or something because we have we, we we just found the gap that students need to have this but we don't think that they have it so it's more how, how do we how do we address it proactively so one small tweak we've some of us that teach introductory courses have done is just change the name of office hours because a lot of of my first gen students have told me well we think you're in your office doing work mm-hmm <laughs> I've received that too. And, and so we've changed it to student engagement hours. Um, another thing I've done is I have a coffee machine in my office. Anyone who comes to my office, I'll offer them an espresso. And that actually brings faculty in also. <laughs> um, but, but more and more students have started to come just because they think it is a safe space 
and therefore we can have frank conversations which turn into well now that you've told me this how can we improve and tweak yourself a little bit to improve so that what you're doing in biology we can also add you making those changes in chemistry or calculus or even fys so that we see growth right yeah you're describing the the research here on the welcoming spaces Mm -hmm. first and then you know getting to sort of the meat of how we can really help them and create a more equitable environment then students learn because Mm -hmm. they're interrelated Mm -hmm. yeah so your examples are great the most important question is, did you submit a request to get a coffee machine in your <laughs> office? Is there, is there somebody I should email for this? Um, <laughs> before you were hired, coffee was free for faculty at Chartwell's. And it wasn't very good coffee, but it was free. <laughs> and free makes everything better. And then it became a dollar a cup. Mm-hmm. And my Nespresso machine is less than that. <laughs> um, so no, there was, there was no budget for personal coffee machines. <laughs> Let's let's move on to um, some opportunities. Did anybody identify opportunities for creating inclusive classrooms? Yes. Um, it started with um, making negotiations with your students, and and so um, one respondent actually said that one way they create an opportunity is by acknowledging their own biases upfront on their students so that the students recognize they've walked in with potentially their own biases. And if it's, if we can air it all out earlier rather than later, that might improve communi- lines of communication, which would improve just having a conversation in a hallway. Um, now, I, I will say that I would love more information on my students to be able to acknowledge more biases because all I know before school starts is their image the name under it and their major. I would like to know, are they an athlete sooner rather than later? Are they a commuter? Are they um, thinking of changing majors or double majoring? There's not a lot of information faculty have easy access to. Right. Um, And then a lot of it also came down to just showing a value of inclusion upfront which I think we've discussed already because if I know my students' names, I'm trying to include them in the material from day one. Um, I would have to put a plug. Um, There is a, it'll be too late by the time this is published, but there is a a conference being held on campus for the diversity in science and the diversity of science because most history books are old dead white guys, um, specifically in sciences. And so we're trying to bring in speakers to show the diversity where you learn this topic in class and now let's have someone who earned their PhD who's fresh out of college who may represent you more than the people in the textbook. Um, and so if this will continue, that would be a, a positive in the sense of, of advertising it to students. That's great. Um, in one of your examples, you said how uh, how flexible you could be with moving dates and, and exams mm-hmm. and such. Um, and that um, you may have some part-time instructors or part-time faculty um, who may not 
know the nuance of what can be pushed or how to push. So that is something, uh, one of the opportunities I've recognized Mm -hmm. in my own department. Um, Fantastic part-time faculty, um, but I haven't reached out to like ask them, like Mm -hmm. how is it going for you? Mm -hmm. What kind of, you know, struggles are you having with this curriculum? Or, I mean, that's not my role because Mm -hmm. it's not an admin responsibility that I have. So certainly, more admin people. Um, I'm just a course, you know, faculty, um, but still the shared responsibility that all faculty have for each other. And if we support people in helping to make some of these decisions, some more mentoring approach, um, that's only going to help the students. Absolutely. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I, when I was first part time here, I may not have known that I, that was even possible. Um, or who to ask, or maybe I wasn't vulnerable enough to admit I didn't know, so mm-hmm. didn't want to mm-hmm. ask um, some of those questions. But now that um, you know, I've been here for several years um, doing some of this work to become a better instructor, um, I'm thinking, well, how do you pass this knowledge to other people, even incidentally, besides just some of the workshops and books that we do? So I'm thinking that's an opportunity you know, for others. I think it's really important. We've said it a couple of times in this conversation, the shared responsibility or the shared feeling of belonging. Um, instructors need to know that they belong to. Right. And we need to know that we're welcomed and we're cared for. And when we feel cared for, then we can pass that care to students. Um, I've always, I know the book, What Inclusive Instructors Do, it, it encourages a student-centric approach. Um, and if I can just revise that idea a little bit, some of the messaging that I've tried to make is that let, we should be moving away from the false dichotomy of in- teacher-centered or student-centered. And we talked about this a little bit with Tracy um, when we were interviewing her. And maybe we can center the space or the action or the environment. If it's learning-centered, then we're all involved in different ways. Sometimes it's equal, sometimes it's not equal. It's equitable. And we're all contributing to that rather than trying to center a person or identity or another common noun in that way. Um, because we can also feel the tension of that either or where some instructors might feel that all the care is being centered on students. Everything is going to students. What about me? I have needs too, especially part-time, especially those who feel contingent or teaching at multiple institutions. They don't have that allegiance. They need to know that they are also welcome in those ways. So I, I appreciated, um, Mike, when you mentioned, you know, what is the growth mindset of faculty in engaging students in inclusive ways? Um, that might be a really interesting survey or, or an item that we add on and to and, and explore. One other thing that I, I've tried to do, and, and a couple of us do it now for opportunities to create inclusive classrooms, is asking a question of the students that I just don't know the answer to. Mm. And then it's a patience part on faculty because normally the wait time between asking a question and a faculty member giving it is something like five or six seconds. Mm-hmm. And so I force myself to ask a, a, a question which may be completely wrong with the material of the day, getting a drink of coffee, and then I'll start having them do a think pair share where they have to research, Google it, try and figure out if it was a valid question, and then also asking what can they report out. Um, and I do that, I try at least once or twice a week, being able to say in the classroom, I don't know. However, we have the internet at our hands. Let's find valid resources. But that's also hard for faculty depending on age, background. Um, I had a hard time doing that early on teaching 
because I don't have a terminal degree. So it was imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. And recent publications have been looking at the value of unscripted problem solving in classroom that positions all of us somewhat horizontally that we're all learning together. Um, regardless of the, the assets that you bring in, the cultural capital that you bring in, we can combine and create a learning community where we're all doing that together. But that does take a certain level of humility and confidence at the same time for that instructor. Have you had similar experiences, Karen, of unscripted problem solving? Yeah, I, I do that quite often, actually. Um, but I feel like maybe it's part of my field, too. Like, mm -hmm. we're always... Um, you know, it might be a patient complication in mm -hmm. something or, you know, a new surgery, a new technique, a new evaluation tool. So there is so much um, new information constantly, and that's the charge to be current. Um, and so we say that to our students. I don't have the answer to all of this because I may have been teaching today. I didn't have a chance to read the latest research article, mm -hmm. right? So it is modeling that we all are lifelong learners, too. It's kind of not ex exactly similar to what you're describing, but it's it's a modeling mm -hmm. of, you know, we're in this together. Um, JT, it reminds me, though, how you and I had a separate conversation mm -hmm. about um, you know, the need to be the expert mm -hmm. in the room, right? Mm -hmm. So this is what puts this barrier. I'm trying to be the expert. Um, and once you're able to let that go a bit and say, you know, I'm just me, I'm just your professor. I know what I'm doing, but I'm also going to be genuine me at the same time um, and not feel like I need to ha have this air of expert. I don't think that about myself, but I think I must have to portray that for my students to feel confident in my classroom. Um, so there's a way I think you could balance mm -hmm, mm -hmm. being the instructor slash expert, but also being a person who is open mm -hmm. um, and um, just kind of modeling that for your students. Because what an enormous amount of pressure to place on ourselves to be the expert all the time. Um, I also find it interesting that you mentioned how it's just a natural fit for occupational therapy. Um, the whole field is to solve problems that we couldn't really predict was going to happen. If we take this approach, I'll kick this to you, Mike. Um, do you think this helps change the relationships that students might have with the discipline or with the content? For instance, do you think that there's a misconception that biology or natural science in general is about knowing a lot of facts without realizing it's also about asking what we don't know? I, I would say that's true. Um, but I will also say that this goes back to the growth mindset of our students or a fixed mindset of the students because a lot of the science majors come in not knowing where they want to be later in life and so they might be a little bit more open-minded to understanding that there are questions we don't know the answer to yet but when it comes to certain majors on campus without naming any of them they already think they know where they're going to be and they don't want to mm. take introductory courses because they want to take their junior level courses without all of the foundational knowledge. And so it's getting around that first that that is the hardest hurdle for a lot of I'll say our university curriculum or, or gen ed courses. Wow. Yeah, I really love um, the perspective that you're bringing in terms of you know, my perspective in a graduate health science program is very different from 
your experiences at this level. Like I'm, I really feel like I'm learning so much Same. by hearing what the experiences mm. of you know, more of an undergraduate professor and these types of. Um, you could always come down and teach an intro bio for a semester. That would be a lot of fun. <laughs> and you get free espresso in his I office. Guess. And I have a growth mindset. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> so what what do you all think we learned from this survey? Like, what's our what is what is our takeaways? What we will be doing? I I, I hear the growth mindset, the acknowledging bias, um, the importance of knowing the name and the story of my name. Um, what are, what did you all learn from looking at these results? That each one of those you mentioned, faculty need more training on. Ooh. Um, Job security I, for it, me. <laughs> <laughs> Coming from the part-time world to a non-tenure track world, faculty still have imposter syndrome. Yeah. And being able to acknowledge this these instances in an anonymous survey helps me think now about what do I need to help the part-time faculty? What could I find other than more time and more money for them? Um, how could we improve training so that they have the confidence to tweak the schedule without feeling like they're breaking the law? Um, Karen? Yeah, it's same. Actually, exactly the same. Knowing the barrier, time, workload, um, I can support my colleagues just recognizing this barrier, even incidentally, without a formal training or a book, mm -hmm. right? So that's that's sort of my takeaway. Do you find, as one last question um, for our takeaways, do you find that there's a little bit of a competition in terms of professional development? Do faculty need to choose between developing their research and scholarship and becoming more inclusive? Do you find that there's a tension there? Or is there an openness for faculty to say like, yeah, I, I do need to do some more inclusive teaching training? From where I sit, I think there's openness. Perfect. I, I do think that workload issue because mm -hmm. I may have to do research, I may have to do, you know, be current like I was just describing, right? So um, we, we keep talking about um, how it doesn't have to be something extra, um, but yeah, time has to be devoted to it mm -hmm. in some way. Yeah, I would, I would say also that, at least for the part-time faculty, training needs to be advertised more than two days before it occurs. Mm -hmm. And so a, a training schedule that comes out in the summer for the fall. Um, Zoom has always helped with, with increased training, mm -hmm. but at the same time, when I was part-time, I taught at three universities in the area and worked at Home Depot on the weekends while juggling a three-year-old. Mm -hmm. And so if I knew everything six months in advance, it would have been easier to, to figure out where am I going to be on this day of the week. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking training versus discussion mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. are problem solving. That's why we're, we're handling it uh, from two different sides, Mike. Um, I'm feeling like I just want to have a conversation like during lunch or in the hallway or just you know just have these vulnerable conversations and share ideas and barriers and stories and the more we talk about it the more we're going to find solutions um, when it's done in that you know mm -hmm. even faculty growth mindset yeah yeah thank you both that's, that's why we're here with book up for busy lives and just try to provide those opportunities on the go yeah, Mike, thanks so much for coming today. We really appreciate the work you did with the survey, um, and I thought the conversation was, was really enlightening to me. Thanks so much. 
You have been listening to Quinnipiac University's Book Club for Busy Lives podcast, brought to you by the School of Health Sciences Inclusive Excellence Committee and Quinnipiac University Center for Teaching and Learning. In our next episode, we will be joined by current Quinnipiac junior Janelle Miller as we explore the student perspective of topics raised in our showcased book, What Inclusive Instructors Do. We hope you enjoyed our discussion. The Book Club for Busy Lives is produced by Grace McGuire with script and presentation assistance by David Majeski. This has been a production of Quinnipiac University, 2023, all rights reserved. <laughs>